0: Hey, everyone. This is Joe Belezzo for EDECMO.org. I'm here today again with Dr. Scott Weingart, one of our co-hosts. Scott, how you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Joe. I'm glad to uh, show up on an Ecmo episode.
0: It's awesome to have you on, my friend. So today, you are going to talk to us a little bit about your experience with the Paris ECMO course.
1: Indeed. I went over there to Paris, which is beautiful, my first time there, uh, specifically for this course. It was coincident with the uh, big ELSO ECMO meeting. Uh, So people were just swarming through the city, uh, just looking for people to cannulate. And uh, this was the pre-course. This is what a lot of people use as their initial foray to sell themselves to their hospital is now having some experience and maybe uh, they could start up an ECMO program. So uh, the way this works, this was a pre-course. It's a uh, two-day gig. On the first day, you do an animal lab. It's actually a sheep. And you do a cut-down cannulation for VA ECMO. And then in the afternoon, there's a didactic session. And that's the majority of what we're going to talk about today is this didactic session. The next day, you go visit Le Petit Hospital uh, in Paris, which I think has to be the biggest ECMO center in the world. I mean, these guys do an insane number of cases. They have an entire... ECMO ICU. I mean, these folks have it down.
0: Man, so this really sounds exciting. So you know, as you know, we have a lot of experience doing VA ECMO uh, in the ER. Less experience doing VV ECMO in the ER. But the VA stuff, you know, we're 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 running down the way that we do things. And you have now uh, come back with a lot of tips and tricks. So let's let's get into it.
1: Yeah. You know, I I was thinking the animal lab would be the interesting part of this, and this didactic session would be, eh, you know, kind of useless. But uh, you know, why not show up? And it turned out this was the highlight of the entire course. The gentleman giving the lecture, Guillaume Le Breton, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that horribly, is a cardiothoracic surgeon at the Petit Hospital, and he just gave uh, a lecture full of tips. I mean, he had PowerPoint slides, but he he had a pretty experienced group. Most of us uh, knew the basics, so he just pretty much ran through those slides and just gave an insane amount of logistical information. And if you know anything about me, Joe, that's the stuff I just thrive on.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so it looks like you're going to uh, break down and run through these slides and this this information. What I'm going to do is try and give you some background information, some side information, and I might even disagree with some of your comments here.
1: I hope you do. That makes it more interesting. Now, <laughs> I will tell you, folks, as we're going through this, all of this is in the show notes for this episode at edecmo.org slash 11. And if you go there, you'll you'll see the uh, stuff we're talking about. You might want to follow along because some of this is going to be complex, a lot of numbers and such. So Joe, what we're going to start off with is uh, how not to frack up uh, the entire ECMO cannulation. And um, Dr. Libertin had some very, very adamant points about this. The first one, the one I have in all caps is do not adapt technique to your capacity. Now, what does he mean by this? He... You know, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He's done uh, an insane number of ECMO cannulations. What he's trying to get across is if you're inexperienced, if you're not very good at this, if you're just mucking about, uh, don't do less than the patient needs because you're scared or uh, you you just don't have enough game to get things done. And, you know, what's an example of this? Well, we're going to talk. A lot of these patients for VV ECMO need big inflow catheters. And the inflow catheter size may be scary. And you might be tempted to use a smaller catheter because they're easier to put in. They're less scary. And that's not going to benefit the patient. It's going to benefit you. And so your technique should not be what's determining things. It should be what's best for the patient. And if you can't do it, get someone else.
0: Totally agree with that. Let's go.
1: All right. Now, this is the one that uh, he stressed, I think, most of all as the biggest way uh, to screw this up, in, you know he has to go rescue these patients in the OR when there's a failed cannulation or a mucked up cannulation. And he says this is the one people screw up most. And I had an inkling of this, but it didn't really ram home until he just kept stressing it again and again how important this is. And that's what he calls a fixed point for the wire. And what he means by this is as you are dilating or as you are placing the actual cannula, the wire must be fixed. It cannot be allowed to move. It cannot be free. It cannot be allowed that as you push in those great big dilators, the wire is moving because that's what's going to lead to backwalling of the vessel.
0: That's that's fascinating to me because I've always taken the opposite approach, that movement of the wire will allow, you know, moving through the vessel that the, the, the cannula will glide across it. But you're saying no. You're saying, he, Dr. Liberton saying, hold the wire and the cannula together and move it as one unit?
1: Just the opposite. The wire should never advance in the vessel. The wire should stay fixed in the vessel, and the dilators or cannulae move over the wire but the wire's tip is never moving now why well if the wire is allowed to move in the vessel you can backwall because the catheter of the cannula is no longer or the dilator is no longer going to follow the wire it's free to go wherever it wants like if you locked your pinky on that wire and pushed the dilator in there's really nothing keeping it from backwalling except for the stiffness of the wire and most of the wires we're using are not stiff enough to prevent the vessel from being destroyed by a uh, hard push of that dilator so i don't know am i getting this across properly joe the wire never moves once it's in uh, the vessel in terms of going in further which means the wire stays fixed as the dilator moves in and out over it does that make sense joe
0: No, that makes perfect sense. And that was, I just misunderstood you. That's the exact point that I would make as well, that that wire stays fixed and the line glides across the wire. We see a lot of, um, you know, like trauma surgeons like to jam a nine French cordis to the groin and they hold the wire and the cannula together and they move both of them together. And that's just not the way to do it. Wire has to stay fixed. The cannulas and the dilators slide over the wire. Correct.
1: I, I got to admit, Joe, uh, before I did my fellowship over the past year, uh, I was placing cortises that way. Mm. And, and he actually mentions this, that a lot of people get the wrong idea because you could get away with it with the smaller lines. And Joe, it's only folks like you and me that think a nine French cortis is a small line. <laughs> but but that being said, you know, you place a triple lumen, you place a cortis. It's not past that border where stupid action will lead to bad results. Uh, you'll get away with it. But you, you shouldn't be doing it even for those lines. Even for those lines, uh, big cortices or the dialysis catheters, uh, the wire should never be pushed further into the vessel while you're doing your dilations or placement.
0: So a good take-home point for people who aren't even doing ECMO, just for your general central lines, you should be doing this way. Uh, the other thing I would say is that if I am placing either a dilator or a cannula, as if I if I get a little hang up or there's a little bit of a problem, I immediately reach back and grab that wire and slide it back and forth and make sure it's not kinked. And that just goes that just drives home the point of what you're saying right now.
1: Absolutely, because once it's kinked and you keep pushing forward, it's definitely going a back wall the vessel.
0: You're done. Yep.
1: All right, the next one he mentioned is uh, being fooled by echocardiography. Uh, He called it echo, I should say, being fooled by ultrasound for line placement. Now, he does not do his own ultrasounds. He's an old-school cardiothoracic surgeon, never got the savvy for ultrasound line placement. He still does it the old-fashioned way. But sometimes he'll have an intensivist with him who will help him out and mm-hmm. hold the probe and tell him whether he's in or not. And he's been told he's in, especially for these IJ placements, and then it's been a big carotid dilation. No good.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: Now, why does this happen? Uh, this happens, A, due to inexperience on the part of the intensivist. But even in the hands of an experienced uh, ultrasound user, you can be screwed if you see it pass into the vein and then you backwall the vein with the needle and go into the artery. And this is not, unfortunately, you know, entirely rare. This can mm-hmm. happen, especially when there's overlap of the vessels. So if this is not an emergent placement, you may want to do a confirmation technique of some sort uh, before you start your big dilations. Now, if you are doing these smaller catheters, uh, like a, uh, a single lumen, then you could do that initial dilation. You'll probably be okay, and then you can confirm. Uh, with either uh, manometry, whether that means a formal uh, monitor-based transduction of pressure or just stick some tubing on there and see if it's uh, overflowing over the top or you know, just put a catheter in there and just inject some saline and see if it goes into the right atrium. But you know, if you have any doubt at all, you might want to check. This is not a ECPR case we're talking about right now where obviously... You You don't have time to muck with that stuff. But if it's a relatively elective VV ECMO cannulation, you might want to be absolutely sure if there's any doubt in your mind where that wire is sitting.
0: Yep. Agree with all points made.
1: All right. The last part is they do cutdowns for all of their eCPR cases in the groin. They do same-sided uh, venous and arterial placement. They do it by cutdown. Uh, and that's because, again, they are not savvy or uh, trusting of ultrasound yet. Uh, Joe, you and Zach have proven you can do this under ultrasound guidance. Uh, though I, I think we may be moving— to probably more cut-downs, even in the hands of people who are very savvy with ultrasound. Would you agree with that, Joe? Uh,
0: To some degree. Here's how we do it. I actually, so to start off, I tend to disagree. If you have somebody who's in CPR status, doing a cut-down with all of that movement actually creates a complete disaster, can, can complete, uh, can can create a complete disaster. We've seen, we've done three or four cases where we've done cut-downs while chest compressions are going on, and it, it... ultimately even with a trauma surgeon there we often will end up transecting a vessel there's just too much movement so what we do is we do two attempts at percutaneous uh, we're really good really savvy with with ultrasound we have been we were getting better at it and we can talk about some t- techniques on how we do it so we hit the vessels on the first try but If we fail to, we then turn to cut down and we usually do that on the contralateral side. So we've got a doctor putting lines into the right femoral vein, right femoral artery. And if one of those becomes a problem, I'll have a trauma surgeon or one of our ER docs do a cut down on the contralateral side as we're still trying to get percutaneous access.
1: Absolutely. I agree entirely with that. We've discussed it offline before, and we're in agreement. And I I would say uh, we should save that for another show, all these tips and techniques for that, because I think it would make a fantastic episode. Now, the counter... From Dr. Leverton is they have gotten so good at their cutdowns, I mean, they do this Mm. all the time, that they could have the patient cannulated uh, at least with those initial wires in less than 60 seconds, which is pretty impressive. So I guess it's just which one you're going to get best at. I think for folks like us, ED docs, intensivists, we're probably going to be more comfortable getting supremely good at the ultrasound guided percutaneous placement.
0: Yeah, and I totally understand why they're having those difficulties if they're not that savvy with ultrasound. You know, our ER docs and intensivists, as you just said, are usually pretty savvy with that. And so percutaneous, percutaneous is the choice for us in the ER and then switch to a uh, switch to a cut down if you fail twice. That's what we're doing.
1: Sounds good. All right, let's move on to the inflow catheters or inflow cannulae. Uh, mm. These are, especially in VV, uh, you're going to get crap flows if you put in too small an inflow catheter. And that's going to be a big deal. You might not get enough of the patient's cardiac output captured to really provide the benefits of your VV ECMO. So he has a few tips on this. Uh, Bigger is better. But there is this uh, transition point where... it becomes very hard to place these enormous catheters. And he made a, a clear point about this. You want your inflow to be somewhere between 24 to 29 French if you could get it. But the 27 and 29 is tough, much, much tougher than the 25 French. And so he says uh, 25 French may be the sweet spot for anyone but the most experienced. ECMO cannulators, because that's the point where you get maximal flow. I mean, if you get 25 French in, you're going to be doing pretty good, and yet you're not going to jump to that transition point where it becomes really tough to get these enormous catheters in.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I just to confirm, you're talking primarily right now about probable VV ECMO in a semi-elective situation as opposed to eCPR. Is that right?
1: Well, it, he goes further to say that mm-hmm. if you want to do VA and really not have it be partial, really be able to take over the patient's full circulatory flow necessities, 25 uh, is a nice spot for those as well, though I know, Joe, you and I would maybe choose 23 in these cases just because we want to get a damn cannula in and get this patient out of being dead.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. The only caveat I would say is an eCPR, you can run the risk of tapping the vessel, getting into the arterial vessel a couple of times if you're not doing it very carefully and getting the wire in on the first stick. So because of that, because of the chaos that can sometimes occur in an eCPR, VA ECMO situation, our cardiologists, our cardiothoracic surgeons are actually recommending that we go to a smaller cannula because of less bleeding complications down the road. And that's a relatively new thing, and you and I have not talked about this yet. Um, But our Cardiothoracic surgeons are actually recommending for VA ECPR ECMO to be putting patients uh, in using a, a 17 to a 19 French arterial and a 19 to a 21 venous, so a little smaller than what Dr. Liberton's recommending, um, but maybe for a little bit of a different reason. Primarily to you know, you've got ER doctors putting these cannulas in in a rapid fire, a chaotic situation, and the less sticks and the smaller sized. Uh, cannulas are usually a little bit better. And we're seeing, just to make one step further, we're seeing flows of about two to two and a half liters using 17 French arterial and 19 French venous. And for getting the patient just to the cath lab or getting them just to the OR, that seems to be okay. Uh, and that might be a little bit of a different situation from what Dr. Libertin's doing in France. You see, yes? now,
1: Joe, what you're talking about is similar to what the Alfred has chosen as well. And those mm. flow rates are, uh, they're pretty good. They're not going to provide full support for the patient. Correct. Now, what you could do to mitigate the problems of those partial VA ECMOs is actually induce hypothermia. And I know you're doing that. Mm -hmm. This may be a case where the 36 degrees Celsius – that many of us have moved to for post-arrest, may not be the best call. uh, Because if you are providing partial flow, you'd love to reduce the metabolic necessities of the body. And if you are cooling these patients still to 33, like the Alfred folks are, you'll probably get away with those lower flow rates.
0: Yep, I totally agree with that, and we're putting Right now, all of our ECMO patients on 33, and this is a topic for another discussion, but that's a a, a fantastic discussion because we're doing all of ours at 33 for very specific reasons, but let's move on with what we're talking about here.
1: Absolutely. Now, he's using McKay catheters for pretty Mm. much everything. Uh, Having experienced the various kinds over the past year, I got to agree with him, the McKay is just better. It's multi-stage for the inflow catheter. It goes all the way down. Uh, you're going to get much better flow rates than the single-stage catheters. So he uses McKay. And he chooses the 55 centimeter McKays uh, for all his inflow cannulae. And now, this was a huge tip for me. Uh, if you want to know how deep to go, just measure from your puncture site to the middle of the sternum with a straight line, not orienting yourselves to the actual vessel anatomy itself. Just straight up from where you're puncturing to the middle of the sternum. And that's gonna take into account the fact that you have to dive a little to get to the vessels, that the vessels don't go straight uh, to the sternum. And where you should wind up if you do that is right in the right atrium. And that's where you want these McKay catheters, is you want the tip in the right atrium, because the multi-stage nature, which means there's holes, uh, a good portion of the of the catheter going down, uh, will continue to drain the IVC, even though the tip is in the right atrium.
0: Yep, I agree with everything you just said. I would say we, we are using Medtronic uh, ca- cannulas, but that's not my choice. I have played with the McKays and I actually really like them for a number of reasons. And just uh, for the, from the ECPR side, once again, uh, because chest compressions are usually going on, I am going from my stick site and I'm putting the tip of that venous cannula at the right nipple. But it's essentially the same thing as what you're saying, is measured out in advance, get a rough estimate of where that tip's going to be, and you want it right up there in or adjacent to the right atrium.
1: Yeah, right nipple sounds good because yep. a little bit deeper is better. Pulling back is a lot better than pushing in from the infection standpoint. Exactly, so yep. I like that. Right nipples, even easier to remember. Uh, we'll get you right about that same place. Okay. Um, and then, and this, Joe, was a change for me. I know. I don't think you've discussed it either, so it's probably going to be a change for you. But you know me, Joe. I like looking at every device I use in emergency medicine and critical care. I like analyzing them and like figuring out why they've designed it the way they have. And if you look at these McKay... Uh, Cannulae, you will notice that on the dilator, there's a set of lines. And when you pull that dilator back to those lines, the tip of the dilator is no longer sticking out of the cannula. Now, I'm like, why do they do this? Well, then I went to this course, and what they do is when they are actually threading the cannula, the inflow cannula, once the holes, the multi stage holes, Mm -hmm. have passed Mm -hmm. the skin, they're in the vessel. They pull back that dilator. And now what that means is when they sight that cannula in the right atrium, there's not going to be that sharp, and these dilators are sharp, that sharp tip of the dilator protruding. What you're going to have is a nice soft tip of your cannula, and they make a point of this is a nice way to not puncture through the heart.
0: Fascinating. So you... You're saying that when you get the, so you're passing the the cannula, you've already dilated, you yep. have the inner dilator inside the cannula, as you're passing that, as soon as the last hole, the sentinel hole, so to speak, on the cannula enters the vessel, the dilator comes back to that line that's marked
1: on there? Absolutely. Now, th- that means the dilator will still be guiding the wire, yeah. because the dilator's still in there, dead center, it's going to force the cannula into the center of the vessel, and you, you have enough of the cannula in the vessel that there's no way it's going to go anywhere else except to continue following that that wire but now you do not have that sharp sharp dilator poking anywhere near the right atrium because what happens in the heart is you know the wires kind of curled in there because you stuck a ton of wire in and uh you do not want that sharp dilator going anywhere near the thin walls of the right atrium
0: god damn that is a fantastic tip i've been loading the whole thing on and passing it in but i have no idea how i haven't punctured the right atrium good point
1: Yep, and uh, you know a lot of the time we're not actually hitting the right atrium, especially sure. on those single stage catheters. But they are deliberately trying to get into the right atrium with the McKay, and I think that's where it becomes super important.
0: Well, we you know we had an ECMO save. It was a PE arrest, and uh, when she went up to IR, the IR doctor called me and said that I'd buried, basically, hubbed the venous cannula into a small little old lady. Well, she wasn't that old, and um, that tip of that cannula was basically stuck up against her right atrium. We we're still getting some flow, uh, but man, I can't imagine what that dilator could have done to that to that right atrium. I mean, she wouldn't be here today. So that's a great tip.
1: All right. Let's go to the outflow cannulae. Mm-hmm. And if these are too small, what you're going to get is hemolysis because you're putting an enormous pressure against a smaller tube and you're going to churn up your red blood cells. So that's going to mm-hmm. be the problem if you go too small. He's recommending 17 to 21 for VA, mm-hmm. right in where you're saying, Joe, yep. and 19 to 23 for VV.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Perfect. If you, now, on VA, we've never had to worry about how deep to go on our return catheter because we just hub those bad boys. But on VV, their preference, my preference at the center I trained at as well, is to put your return cannula in the IJ, and you can't hub it there. So Mm -hmm. he recommends depth of 15 centimeters on the right, 23 on the left. Just what we do when we're putting triple lumens in as well. Yep. Now, they don't pull back on the dilator for these arterial placements uh, for a couple reasons. One, the artery is much thicker. You don't have to worry about it. And you shouldn't be going anywhere near the actual chamber of the heart. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, for the actual placement themselves for both sets, if you're going in the groin, it may make sense to straighten the vessels. And the way they do that is by putting some padding behind the butt, about four inches of sheets or pillows. And Joe, you and Zach have recommended putting something firm like a backboard back there or a uh, something stiff, I think for the same reason, to straighten out those vessels.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. If a patient arrests in our ER, we will take a backboard or a small CPR board and pass it behind their their pelvis, but we have not put a pad back there, and that's an even better idea to raise those vessels up. Uh, If a patient comes in from the field in full arrest, we just leave them on the backboard, transfer them over to our gurney, and then if we happen to use, we're using a Lucas device now, we actually pass the Lucas between the backboard and the patient, specifically so, exactly this, so that the Backboard stays behind the pelvis, which raises that pelvis up. And as you have a big, you know, these patients are often heavy set, you know, middle aged or older, heavy set men, and they usually have a bit of a panic. You're holding that back, and then as you're pushing into their groin, they start to taco a little bit into the bed. And so having that uh, having that backboard behind them is really helpful. So I love this tip.
1: All right, he's recommending the needle bevel faces up, and the wires J faces up, and that's just to avoid backwalling and to send it to the right place. Totally agree. Now, this one, I think we've we've discussed a little bit, Joe, but I don't think we've discussed it to the degree it should be discussed in terms of how important it is. But it's a gentle angle for needle placement. If you're placing a triple lumen, I mean, you could go 90 degrees to the vessel or, or you know, close to it, and everything will still be okay. It's a soft catheter. But when you're doing dilations, if you are already at a very steep angle on your needle, the dilators are going to follow that angle as well. And they're going to be aimed directly towards the back of that vessel. You're going to have a harder time dilating and you have a good chance of causing vascular trauma. So it'd be really nice if you were as close as possible to the actual orientation of the vessel, which means as close as possible to horizontal or parallel to the ground.
0: I would agree with that. And I would add one little tip to that in that the common femoral artery and common femoral vein are not... Uh, pointed north and south. They're pointed from the lateral side towards the midline. So you should not be shooting your... If you're going into the vessel, you don't want to be pointing uh, straight cranial from the caudal side. You want to be at maybe a 30-degree angle lateral pointing inward towards the belly button. And that's another... It's another problem i see people make
1: yep yep so joe's talking about the horizontal orientation about not going from the feet to the head and what we were referring to just a second ago is the vertical orientation which means don't raise the back end of your syringe towards the ceiling uh, because that's going to make your angle of dilation harder both of those huge tips for placing your needle and this makes the ultrasound a little bit harder i mean it's beautiful to go right up against that probe at a near 90-degree angle because your needle tip will be coincident with where the probe is hanging, uh, angling. If you want to use this gentler angle, which you should for ECMO, you need to start further back than the actual ultrasound probe itself or else you'll never have any idea where your tip is. So you want to start, for the skin, a ways back from your ultrasound probe so that the tip of the needle actually hits just under your probe face.
0: Yep, that's it.
1: All right, now he has taken something from the uh, interventional cardiologist, which is when they place guide wires, or the IR guys as well, they place them in fast. And the idea behind this is if you place them slow, they might have a tendency for the blood flow to wash them up against the side branch. But if you place them fast, they'll go quick up the uh, main vessel itself. I have no idea whether this is true or not. It's what I have always been taught as well, uh, and it's a tip he gives. I don't know if this has veracity. What's your thoughts, Joe?
0: I don't know either, but that's exactly what I do. And I would just add one extra guide wire tip to that in that – As you know, with the chest compressions going on, your best bet, your best option is to get that guide wire in on the first stick. And so when you do have that needle tip in the skin, I personally now wait for the first pulse check. So when the chest compression, there's again, ECPR. If a chest, when the chest compressions stop at about the two minute mark, I then dive right in and wire goes in as fast as I can. We get the wire in, needle out and chest compressions go on again. And so it's basically saying the same thing. And I don't know if the speed of putting that wire in helps or not, but it certainly seems to.
1: All right. His next tip, you know, we, we, we discussed this when we talked about the, uh, the cognitive task analysis of cannulation, stage one and stage two, is how much wire to put in. He recommends... Always, always using a super long wire. That's the 150 centimeter wire. That's what your extra stiff, your super stiffs are going to be. It's what the ones are going to come with in the ECMO cannulation kits are going to be. And then just put 50 centimeters in, one meter out. He doesn't measure precisely, but this gives you an idea. A third of the wire goes in, two thirds stay out. That's going to be enough that you don't have to pull back on the wire to actually put your catheter on.
0: I've learned from this tip because I've been passing the wire in a little bit too deep and then having to do exactly that, pull some of the wire out as I'm removing dilators. So I I totally agree with this tip.
1: All right. His scalpel cut, he just plunges in about a sonometer, and uh, that's his only cut. He doesn't do uh, what I've learned and what some people do, which is as I'm dilating, I'll make the cut bigger and bigger. He just goes fully as big as he needs, which is going to be about a sonometer right up front.
0: And I'm using an 11 blade, and I'm passing it all the way down to the little plastic part, the hub of the 11 blade, go all the way down right along the wire, pull straight back, and I'm not doing any more cuts either.
1: There you go. He doesn't bother rotating the dilators. He just uh, gently passes them with that fixed point of the wire. Uh, This probably makes sense uh, because the dilator, uh, you know, the spinning may just be voodoo. Um, uh, You know, the dilator is is forcing that tissue uh, by direct uh, pushing to, you know, the circumferential width of uh, your cut, I, I the, the rotation, you know, I was taught that way. I don't know what it's doing.
0: Yeah. I don't know either, but it's, it feels so good to like give you that little half quarter turn as you're going in. It feels like you're corkscrewing it into the vessel and being a little more gentle, but maybe that's just not the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if they built the dilators as corkscrews that may have relevance. <laughs> um, but when you actually look at it and think about it, he may be right. He probably is. He's done more than probably anyone uh, I've ever heard of. Even you and Zach. Fair enough. All right, VV, uh, if you're going to do it do uh, yourself without you know a set of other people doing the opposite side on the, uh, mm-hmm. on the neck versus the groin, do the femoral first because it's a lot harder to get knocked out uh, when you move up to the head because you're leaving this bad boy clamped, and it, it generally you're not doing the securing of these catheters until after you have both in and the patient's on pump. So if you're going to do one, the femoral is a lot easier to leave there safely without having to worry that someone's going to jar the patient and knock out your catheter.
0: Yep, sounds good.
1: All right, we're briefly going to go over doing Fem Fem VV. Um, we don't use it where I trained. Uh, they don't use it down, uh, in Paris either, but the Alford, uh, which is the big center in Australia, we keep mentioning, they do it uh, a lot. So if you're going to do this, it's a little bit tougher and you have to understand what's going to happen or else the catheter tips are just going to suck from each other. You're going to get enormous reflow. Nothing good's going to happen. So let's just go over this real quick. I'll read all of them, uh, up front and then you can tell me if you have any comments, Joe, uh, you want the return catheter in the right atrium. Uh, And this, therefore, needs to not be a multi-stage catheter or it's just going to suck in uh, everything. Uh, It's going to give back everything and it's going to get sucked in by your inflow. So that's not going to work. So you want a single-stage catheter, meaning it's just giving back at the tip. And so he recommends using the Medtronic for the return. The Mm. drainage should be central, you know, right up in the proximal IVC, but not actually in the right atrium. And that hopefully will keep that reflow phenomenon from happening. Put both guide wires in first before you do the actual cannulation. Do the return cannula, the longer cannula, uh, first before you do the inflow. Uh, Use a 21 to 23 for the uh, inflow cannula. Just use the standard length, the 55 sonoma. Just don't put it in as deep. And then uh, the 17 to 19 is a single-stage return. He goes for the Medtronic on this one, um, and so there's no problem.
0: I think those are all great tips, and I will say that, you know, we also put in the Avalon, usually put in the Avalon dual-lumen cannula into the jugular when we're doing veno-venous ECMO. That said, we had a crashing asthmatic upstairs in the ICU about a year ago, and she was so heavy set that had absolutely no neck, and we didn't have the availability of ultrasound that we sort of resorted to doing a femoral-femoral VV ECMO on this patient and did exactly this. So even though you think you're too good for this, you think your, uh, your, your, your facility doesn't do femoral-femoral VV, you may be in a crashing situation, and these tips will come in handy.
1: Absolutely. And I'll tell you, uh, the IJ catheters still scare me. Uh, the <laughs> femoral is, is much more reassuring. Uh, I don't know if that's a false reassurance, but sticking these enormous cannula in the neck is it's still a little bit off-putting to me
0: 33 to 35 french that's enormous
1: yep (laughs) all right let's go to starting up the vv ecmo Mm. um have one last clamp on the tubing start up slow start at 2000 rpm and then slowly declamp knock your sweep up to six liters per minute or whatever flow you're at you should get one-to-one. Now, this BQ match uh, should have been obvious to me from the physiology, and yet it never, for some reason, related to my mind that these two should match. But, yeah, absolutely, your, your perfusion and your uh, ventilation should be the same. So if you get seven liters of flow, you might as well start your sweep up at seven liters. Sure. All right. Go up to the max flow you could get um, and see... Uh, what that number is just so you can have in the back mind how far you could go and really you want to provoke reflow you want to see some of that bright red stuff coming into your inflow cannula cuz now you know where to dial back if you've picked the right size cannula you should be able to for this VV easily get up to 6 or 7 liters if you can't it's because either the patient's hypovolemic or getting poor cardiac output or you chose cannula sizes that were too small Uh, Once you're there, once you see a little bit of reflow, dial back. Go back to five or six liters, and at this point— the patient should be at 100% SAT. If they're not, then something is wrong. Uh, you, you don't have your flow meter hooked up to 100% oxygen. Something's not in the right place uh, because they should be up to 100% at this point. And then if you're still seeing recirc at around the five or six liter mark, uh, you should slightly pull back on one of your cannulae, and that should be the inflow cannula, the femoral cannula. Never go beyond about uh, one to three centimeters on pulling back until you confirm where these folks are sitting on an x-ray.
0: Yeah, these are all great tips, and what you're really saying here to sort of sum it all up is that In either case, VA or VV ECMO, you can never – well, you can rarely have too much flow. And so maximizing flow is always the question. In a VA situation, we'll often crank up the RPMs until we get a little bit of chatter and then back down. And then in your situation or what you're talking about here with a VA ECMO, you're going to crank up the RPMs until you get to a a little bit of reflow and then back down on that. Is that right?
1: It is right. You said VA and you meant VV and uh, we knew exactly what you were talking about.
0: (laughs) Okay, thanks.
1: All right, now he very briefly went over some Avalon tips, and it's because they don't like Avalon's as the initial placement. For VV ECMO at uh, the Petit Hospital. They use it for someone who's already weaning nicely. They want to transition them to a catheter that maybe they don't need as much support, and they want the patient to be able to walk around super easily, and they'll go for that. They've had a lot of problems as using this as the primary support for the initiation of VV. The flow rates they get are not what they want. Uh, this would disagree with folks like uh, Roger Pye in Australia, but this has been their experience. They have an insane level of experience, so uh, they don't use the Avalon very much, but if they do do it. Uh, the tip that came out of this is if you turn the head all the way to the left, that's the way to align the IVC and SVC to get that nice straight shot. Because what you're doing on these is you're going through the jug, you want to get uh, into the SVC, you want to go through the right atrium into the IVC because the catheter actually transverses the right atrium.
0: And just for clarification, in case anything changes, the Avalon catheter that you're referring to is the dual lumen catheter that goes into the IJ and the uh, The Avalon has now been—it's in the process of being purchased out by McKay, so they may end up changing their packaging. So I don't want to get that too confused in case they end up changing their package names or the name of the cannula itself. It's the dual lumen catheter that you're talking about
1: here. Absolutely. The last thing on my list, uh, he then went into some VA stuff. It wasn't covered as extensively in this lecture because we had done a lot of it on the sheep. And we'll have videos of that, Joe, and I'm actually going to get a cardiothoracic surgeon to narrate those. So that's coming to the show shortly. Very good. Now, uh, he gave the tip of always doing the Venus first. It's a uh, thinner-walled vessel. It's going to be tougher during the cutdown stage. It's a lot easier during percutaneous cannulation. And so he says get that one out of the way first. And we'll discuss this more extensively when that video is published. But we definitely, I think, need to do some work on cutdown for this show because it's the thing I think we're going to have the least experience for as intensivist and resuscitationist-driven ECMO.
0: Yeah, and as you know, we have plans to, uh, to do a full episode on the cutdown itself. We can talk about that in future episodes as well.
1: Absolutely. So that's what I had from the Paris ECMO course, except uh, Paris is a nice place to visit if you've not been there before.
0: I haven't been there yet, and I look forward to going. Well, Scott, man, thank you so much for going on out there and getting these, uh, putting together the, all of these tips and tricks. And we actually, actually want to also thank uh, Dr. Liberton for his fantastic information. So uh, on behalf of, uh, well, Zach Shiner, who's probably once again sleeping somewhere, Scott, this is Joe Balezzo. Thank you for uh, listening, and we're signing out.